Hey there, it's Rob Callen. Since the Lead with a Question podcast launched, we've been so grateful to hear from listeners who have found the show meaningful. Now, if that describes you, could you take a minute and subscribe to the show, leave a rating, and maybe even write a short review? When a podcast is newer like ours, every single listener interaction helps other people discover the show as well. It really means a lot to us. Thank you. This is Lead with a Question. When I, when I really started diving and really wanted to get serious into story structure and, and storytelling, that was one of the big things that when I, I separated myself from a lot of the books and I just wanted to understand the human experience because we all live the human experience, which is nothing but an awesome story. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, Connect with guests who embody these principles, and whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Have you ever wondered why some movies connect with us while others don't? Flashy special effects can help, but at their heart, good films include meaningful stories and characters we care about. Our guest today knows a few things about the creative process, having logged dozens of credits working on movies like The Iron Giant, the original Spider-Man trilogy, Where the Wild Things Are, Cowboys and Aliens, Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America. Along the way, he's also picked up a few leadership lessons. And so today, he'll help us consider the question, how can character development in storytelling improve our leadership? a conversation with animator and storyboard artist Ryan Woodward on this episode of Lead with a Question. You know, ever since I was a little kid, there was no question in my mind, you know, what I wanted to do. And I wanted to draw and I wanted to create stories, basically. And um, I never even looked to the side, you know, it was always that. And um, got uh, started at Warner Brothers Animation, feature animation, um, as a junior or an apprentice animator and working on Space Jam. And then when I was stayed there for a few years and did like the Iron Giant and Osmosis Jones and Quest for Camelot, a few other fun, um, nice 2D animated movies in the old school flipping way. It was a really magical time during the the mid to late 90s in the business. There was a lot of energy and a lot of really focus on story, actually. 
really, really big focus on story because the Lion King just like ripped everybody's heart out and everyone started dissecting how they do that, you know, and, and, and it became really important, a really important thing. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I dove into, um, I left Warner brothers and went to Sony as a, uh, a storyboard artist and did the Spidey films, the Tobey Maguire ones. And, um, that was incredible learning experience with not only with like creative leadership, that was amazing. Um, and the leaders around me and the way they could, uh, rally the troops, you know, and get not, not manipulate, but people genuinely wanted to, to, to do better every day. It was really a, a fantastic time. Um, and then, and being directly involved in the story team, um, you know, we're crafting stuff and, and diving into character and deep, deep layers of the character and, and, uh, and, and, and always in that very thematic subjective mindset of what a scene means and how to craft it in a way to make it more powerful and how you can't just do that unless you really understand the meaning behind almost every scene. Uh, really, really wonderful time. Um, and, uh, and I was at, um, at Marvel after that, I kind of stuck with Marvel films for a while. Um, Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and the Avengers and, you know, a few others there with Marvel still bouncing in and out of other ones too, like where the wild things are and, um, uh, Cowboys and aliens, um, which is probably a number I'm missing there, but, um, all in story and, um, meeting lots and lots of different people, different art directors, different directors. And that's really, I mean, as a story artist, like the person that I reported to was the director, you know, and he's the captain of the ship. He or she is the captain of the ship and they are the creative leader of the ship. And so having gotten to like be one-on-one with them for so long in a myriad of variety, you get to see some character traits and some leadership traits that work and then ones that don't too. Um, and so that was, that was fascinating. That boy, that worked me hard. You know, those films, um, taught at BYU then, you know, for about for 10 years and, um, taught, uh, story classes and animation classes and, and, um, all that fun stuff, everything that's related to pre-production in a way. Um, went to, um, then I went to Riot Games first time in a game company back in 2013, 14, 15, somewhere in there. That's that's around the time we met you, Chris and I. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you don't mind, uh, do you mind kind of going back to some of those experiences with different directors, maybe highlight some of those things that really stood out to you in, as far as qualities in, in their leadership, Oh gosh, maybe yeah. some of the, the negative characteristics that you hope not to, you know, embody yourself. Um, oh, I yeah. just think that's a, it's a great uh, area for us to explore for a bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the creative leaders that, and I'll give you some examples that I really interacted with. They, they, um, they never asked for attention. They never asked for, um, anyone to obey their, their direction. You know, they never asked for follow me, you know what I mean? Kind of, kind of directives. They never, ever, ever would even suggest that, but that people followed, 
you know, everyone followed my, the first one I really, um, who still, I consider my mentor was, um, Michel Vanier. And, um, he, he, man, his, he, he did not like to lead, but everyone followed Michel because his craft was so amazing, so superior. And, uh, everyone knew it, you know, but he hated meetings and he hated people looking at him and saying, what do you think? And, you know, he hated all that stuff. Those are the best kind of leaders. Though, right? <laughs> I, they are. It's so <laughs> true. And I remember on, you know, I was with him on a couple of films and then on, uh, it was funny, Osmosis Jones, that's why I'm wearing the hat. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a, there was a moment where they were begging him to be the, the supervisor again in this, in this area. And he said, no, nah, I, I can't, I can't, I just want to do the art. And they said, well, how about you just do the art and approve the art and we'll get somebody else to go to meetings and you can co, co-supervise. Boy, that was a train wreck. <laughs> that was a train wreck because the other poor other guy, nobody gave him two cents, man. <laughs> nobody gave him two cents because they all knew, they all knew who the real leader was. Um, and, uh, to give you another example, like um, Sam Raimi on the Spidey films, amazing leader, just absolutely knows how to pull the best out of you, but also cause you a lot of stress. Mm. You know, <laughs> you know, he would he would say things to me like um, when I showed up on number three, I think it was um, after there was a break, and uh, he threw this uh, scenario at me. He says, "Okay." First thing I want you to do, Ryan, is get in there and, you know, we got this character, you know, Flint Marco, and he's going to turn into sand and then he's going to try and rise up out of the sand and we want this cool dramatic moment. Uh, you know, I want you, want you to just, you know, take a couple of weeks and just kind of explore that and show me what you got. And, and he's like, and I'd like to see some stuff in 3D too. And I was young in 3D. I didn't know anything in 3D. And if you know anything about 3D, sand is like dynamics, right? It, particle dynamics and you're using programs like Houdini, which requires a thesis PhD in, you know, all kinds of like <laughs> physics. And, oh man, I just, I stressed so bad. And I, and I, I did some 2D stuff and I did a bunch of boards and I did a bunch of emotional mood boards. And then I don't know if it was a week or two, but I went in afterward and I, I pitched all the stuff in his office and he, he looked at it and he's like, great. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm good ideas. And then he's like, thanks. Thanks, man. And I'm, and I'm kind of walking out going, so what's you uh, like or any of those landing? He goes, he goes, Oh yeah, I've seen a lot of these ideas, you know, come out in other ways. He goes, we've had a whole team of tech artists working in Houdini for a year working on this stuff. We, I just wanted to see what you could do in a week or two. Without knowing, without knowing anything about all that, and I, uh, I was, I was like, "You son of a gun, you son of a gun," you know. But he was always so lighthearted and 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 laughing, and he would do things to sort of play, play embarrass you, you know, in meetings. You know, if if you're in a meeting with all, I remember one time we're in there with all the art directors and producers, and I did some boards, and it caused the producer to go, "Oh my gosh, we can't do that. That's too expensive." You know, as I designed this set that was massive, and uh, and Sam goes, "All right, got to do the teapot song. Stand up, you know, if you stand up and do the whole teapot song in front of everybody, it's not like you know, it's just it was it was very jovial, you know, but it's that kind of uh, 
you know, uh, lightheartedness, even in the intensity of making a film, you know, that everyone loved about the guy. And you said you, you worked on a Iron Man as well. Uh huh. And then, so was that with John Favreau or? Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I worked with him on that and also on, um, Cowboys and Aliens. That was the first time I worked with him. Um, he has a great support group. So good on him because he's actually become insanely successful now, you know, writing and directing. And, uh, but I, uh, I would, uh, I, I suspect it's a, a lot of team effort there. The, the power of co-creation, right? Yeah. Did people step up, you know, when he had to take off and he was, he was even in an actor at the time, you know, filming a few movies and he'd take off for weeks. And so, you know, people stepped up, you know, and, uh, that's where that's also, you know, Iron Man was successful because the budget was so low, really. They couldn't do, they couldn't do expensive visual effects. And so they, they were forced to sort of, um, have a lot more character moments with Tony Stark. And all that did is make the film better. Had they had two, three times the budget or 20 times the budget like they do now, it, I, 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 absolutely don't believe it would have been that good of a movie. There was, there was only, if I remember what, two or three kind of action scenes in the first one, that's it. And some right. of them, a couple of them are quite quick. Yeah. So they, they just focused everything on character development. Well, and Tony needed a lot of yeah. development too. I mean, I think yeah. other than, other than Thor, he's probably the Avenger, you know, along with Thor, I should say, He's the Avenger that like had the most, the most complex, development yeah. that he needed in order to sort of grow into his his role. Yeah. So that that might may, may be kind of a happy byproduct of some of those limitations from a, a budgetary standpoint. Well, yeah, there was also yeah a lot of conflict with his comic character too that was a little too close to Robert Downey Jr. Like substance abuse stuff. Oh yeah, total drunk. Yeah. And there were even scenes that I boarded where um, they didn't get to it in too much in the second one. But when I first joined or the, the first one, but when I joined the second film, um, there was originally a lot of like uh, showing him drinking and throwing up and partying mm. and all that stuff. And and I did all these boards with him having a big party at his house and using his using his 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 hand, you know, with the with the you know, the energy there to hold up his, his drink, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of balance it and, and throwing up in a C-17 before he jumped out, you know, because he'd been pounding so hard. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was really heavy on the, the substance abuse part, but I'm glad they took that out. It, it was probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. Overkill yeah. probably. Yeah. Well, something yeah. that you said while you were describing some of Sam Raimi's late leadership it, it struck me and there was a specific word that you used uh, and you said that he was kind of play embarrassing people on, on the team in your career. And especially yeah. in, in leadership that you've seen, how has the principle of play or fun or, or lightheartedness made for the co-creative process to, to be carried out in, in a fuller way? Absolutely critical. And, and it's, it's, it's the two like polarity and everything, right? You has to, you have to be able to come with, um, with at times when you need to put down the hammer, you can put it down pretty hard. And when you don't have to put down the hammer, 
keep things light because that, that just enables everyone's mind to sort of de-stress and, and, and drop those anxiety chemicals that are flowing through your system. Because when those flow through your system, they, they impede creativity with the snap of a finger, you know, they do because your mind gets focused on like deliverables and your mind gets focused on the, the, um, the, the time it takes to make it and the value of your time and the value of your work and how other people are going to look at it. But when, but when that's sort of at ease, the creative mind is more innovative and it's not so worried about all those deliverables. It's, it's just, it just falls into this, like, um, there's a lot of cool science that I studied on this where how the brain releases dopamine in, in highly creative moments. And, and there's, and what happens to the nervous system and all that stuff. And it, opens up the mind to focus on meaning over product, if that makes sense. Like, why are you making this? Why are you crafting it? Instead of what are you crafting? You know, and that's, I have a whole other, a whole other thing that I use now that helps me get into that mind space. But um, definitely those leaders that enable that, that, that the gavel, but then keep it light. One time he came in and it was early and it was right when the movie Rain of Fire came out. If you remember that, we were on Spidey 2 and he just grabbed all the story artists and there was about five of us at the time. He goes, come on, fellas, let's go to the movies. <laughs> and we're like, all right. And he took us all to the movies and he's like, I've been wanting to watch this movie. It's going to scare me to death. And we sat and we watched Rain of Fire and, you know, took half the day in the movie theater. That's and, rad. Yeah. It was, uh, when you see that, but you know, then when you get into production, you know, there's no way he's going to do that. The, 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 the crunch is more intense. There's some, there's something about like honing in on the, those opportunities, right? It's like the, the tapping into the time and space to kind of have that fluidity within your team where you can, you know, be really focused. The work is serious. Maybe there's time constraints. There's a little bit of pressure to get things done, to have the quality of work come together. But then those moments where you need to breathe, it's time to breathe. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things you were saying too earlier, um, you know, what does it all mean? That's something we refer to in Brave Corps creating context. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much of the world and you see it on social media, it's this push to create content, you know, just get get, you know, kind of outpace the noise that exists, right? Create better content, create content that is going to capture people's attention. But, you know, perhaps that's what people's work life is like as well. You know, as employees, you know, um, a lot of the tasks become mundane, you know, it's just kind of this rinse and repeat approaching your day yeah. and, and you're just creating content and more content and reports and spreadsheets. And, but yeah, you know, absolutely. you hit on something cr creating context, you know, is, is what does it all mean? So maybe, uh, you know, tackle that for a bit, you know, what, oh, what is yeah. it like in, in the creative process when a team comes together with a sense of purpose and, and you're just fueled with that? What is, what is that experience like in, in that industry? Well, here's, I'll give you the, the, the scenario that typically doesn't work very well is when there is no real established meaning on a project. And, and I'm not talking about a like moral of the story or anything like that. It's, 
it's 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 the thinking process and the, the thematic argument you know the the good versus evil the those kinds of things the right versus wrong when it's not there and you're just creating a sort of a plot driven story where it's just one fantastic explosion after another um it always happens in the end they screen it and people go yeah but it is a nice show, but it was being yeah, sort of, and then, the, and then all the producers scramble and say, we got to put a moral in there. We got to put a moral in there. And that's the classic fast and the furious, you know, where Vin Diesel goes, it's all about family. <laughs> and it's like, are you kidding me? You didn't address family once in <laughs> driving around the streets. You know what I mean? They threw that in there at the end, just to sort of, you know, fake that they had some meaning yeah, behind you, you that. Can't, you can't force <laughs> meaning, right? You can't just inject it. It has to be intentional. You have to design it, you know, from the onset. Yeah, it's it's a hundred percent the driving that thematic argument is, which is, I usually like to to, to state it in ways like. Um, um, greed leads to self-destruction. You know, very, very simple, right? And you can flip that and you could say greed leads to prosperity. And you can actually create a very strong argument both, both, uh, both ways. And, and that's how you really truly establish solid meaning that actually has a debatable context in the viewer's mind is you, is you establish that polarity and it has to make sense. You know, you can't say, you know, murder is bad and then, and then say, okay, let's do the opposite. Murder is good. Like no one's going to follow that. You know, you have to create an argument that, that really can be sustainable with context. And then you build all, inside all of your support characters and all of your, your, um, all of your, your archetypes and, and your relationship dynamics, you always build that dynamic of that thematic argument and without hitting it on the nose, you know, and then when the movie is over, the conscious mind thinks about all the wonderful stuff they saw, but down deeper in the subconscious where we ingest meaning, it's stirring. And that's when you walk out of a film and you're just going like, wow, wow. And you think about it for a few days. Wow. You know, cause it's gone deeper and it hit on a human experience thing and your conscious mind can't interpret it because otherwise it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be a subjective meaning. It would be an objective, uh, preaching, you know? And so crafting that right at the very, very, very beginning, um, is, is, is a real challenge. And, but when it's there, oh boy, and everyone gets behind it then you, then, then it's magic, you know, that's movie magic. Yeah. One of the themes too, you shared with us before is around, uh, and speaking of principles and we believe in the, this pattern of the hero's sacrifice. So a lot of people talk about the hero's journey and that's, that's true. Right. And a lot of movies pattern or, uh, you know, follow that, that, um, you know, that cycle, uh, or process. And, and, you know, we believe too that, Hey, there's this kind of peak, element of that, which is the hero's sacrifice and what are they willing to give, right? What price are they going to pay? And, and part of what you're sharing too, is about this earned experience, right? And I'd love to hear, you know, I think people would love to hear more about how, how does sacrifice, you know, work in terms of you know, story and character in your experience and you know, what's the impact of that on audiences as well. In today's cinema, that, 
that principle of sacrifices is getting lost so fast. It's disappearing faster and faster and faster. And it gets me kind of um, frustrated because it's so simple and, and so human. When I, when I really started diving and really wanted to get serious into story structure and, and storytelling, that was one of the big things that when I, I separated myself from a lot of the books and I just wanted to understand the human experience because we all live the human experience, which is nothing but an awesome story to everyone living their life. You know, it's all a good story. And so I had dived into, well, what does that mean? How come, how, what makes that? And in large part, it's, it's judging and sacrificing and, and then the rewards you get and making sure those are balanced, like very, very, very balanced. Um, um, the, I, I, I use this movie as a really great example is uh, the breakfast club, you know, because they're not blowing up universes, you know, they're not throwing planets at each other. You know, there's no nuclear bombs and, you know, the stakes aren't, you know, the, the, the fate of the world or anything like that. It's, it's these five characters and, um, what they wanted was just to be heard, just to be heard and maybe make a friend. That was it. That's, that's, that's the character goal. None of them wanted to, you know, rule the school, you know, or anything like that. And what was the sacrifice? They just had to be vulnerable to each other. They just had to do that thing that's so hard in high school. And that's open up your heart to your peers and, uh, and be vulnerable. And there are so many vulnerable moments in that movie. And every one of those characters goes through this amazing vulnerable thing. And so when you get to the end, it feels so incredibly balanced. All they wanted was friends and to be heard. And the sacrifice for that is just social vulnerability. And it's balanced and it's perfect. And then you get movies like, oh, hopefully you guys aren't a fan of these because then I might, uh, <laughs> I might uh, say the wrong thing. But I, I'm, I remember when Dune came out and I just, uh, that's a perfect example right there of a horribly imbalanced character that received everything for nothing. And um, whenever you see that in real life, we just look at that person as a spoiled brat. You know, married with special effects, right? <laughs> and the nuance of a, a, you know, different worlds and species and things like that, right? You kind of like it starts to the, that type of storyline starts to blur, right? The character development. Yeah, it was. I mean, right off the bat, they established him as this kid with these amazing powers, and then he disrespects his own mother, and then he can kung fu fight with his own sensei and own him, and then he can fly a helicopter. And then he can fly a broken helicopter through a sandstorm. And it's like, where, where's the sack? What did he have to give up? You so, know? so true. This is a, <laughs> this is a great example of that. Yeah. And at the end, you just feel so like, you feel so like, boy, that kid didn't deserve that story, that context. Right? He didn't deserve people to rally behind him. You know, that character didn't deserve any of that stuff. And so you, 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 you separate yourself because your subconscious says that's not real life. Yeah. Actually the movies where there is sacrifice and the person earns it, as you said, on a subconscious level, they feel it deeply. Right. 
But uh, I guess the point is like in real life, we experience a lot of that and yet we don't necessarily want that. But that's also the, the, the journey, right? The experience yeah. that is real, right? That we're having. And it's kind of like the one mirrors the other. And it's not being afraid to establish a flaw, a deep flaw in your character that, that you want to experience that growth with. You have to show a, a deep enough flaw that's going to equate the reward you know, when he or she like overcomes that flaw. And that's something I've noticed even probably when I was writing a lot of short stories for Riot and when I was at Paramount too, and I was creating the opening sequence of the main character when I was at Paramount and, and, uh, they wanted this super fun, happy kid, you know, he's cool. He says hi to the neighbors. He, he said, you know, he, 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 uh, helps the old man not fall over, you know, and, you know, he, picks an apple up, but he just uber nice, you know, uber great. And, uh, I was really advocating for, look, we got to show his flaw. This is the first time we see him. We got to show where he has a massive hiccup. Otherwise he is not going to be relatable. Oh yeah. But we don't want people to feel bad. I'm like, no, everyone's flawed in this world. You know, we have to show that if you want any sort of growth out of this character. And, um, it was tough. It's tough to get people to, to sort of see how important it is to show flaws. Yeah. I think you're hitting on something too. And, and back to what Chris was just trying to explain with, you know, real life like this, <laughs> what you're describing in storytelling and the lack thereof in Hollywood, you know, sacrifice and these type of flaws that are, you know, that are part of the story, the overall story of individuals, you know, we see that in social media where everything's curated. You know, it's like, you know, if I go to my, even if I go to my own Instagram account, you know, my personal one, it's like highlights, it's like vacations, family pics on the, on a (laughs) Vista, or, you know, we're about to head out to the beach, uh, somewhere. Um, or it's like, I'm celebrating my anniversary and then going out to dinner. My wife and I are dressed up, right? It's like everyone succumbs to this kind of curation and polish, um, that we're afforded on social media. And I think that's, that's what we're missing right now in life. That's what we're missing in our own personal stories is that sense of vulnerability, that sense of, you know, falling down from time to time or, or being able to expose our flaws and actually confront them with others, you know, acknowledge them with others. Right. And it's, it, it is a foundational principle of the human experience that you just can't get away from. The more you try and fake it, the more, the more, uh, it, it won't connect to people. It, it just won't, you know, you could, you could make a movie that's the most flawless person in the world and, and, and everything else around the movie is amazing. But if you miss that part, it's, that's it. It's done. It's not human. It's not, it's not the real life. I mean, because I always say, you know, when I taught teaching or when I taught, when I taught story, the number one, like, like thing I wanted to bury into the, their, their heads there at the, at BYU was everyone can tell a good story. Everyone can tell an amazing story. We all live amazing stories, you know, every aspect of our life. Think of the one of the hardest things you went through. That's an incredible story, right? So the trick is not telling the story. The trick of storytelling is, is 
telling it in a way to help others feel the same way you feel. That's the trick. Because you could tell a story and if you don't pose it with the right context and the right perspectives uh, and, 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 and the right support on the argument side, um, you'll, it will, no, people will not feel the way you feel. So that's another reason why I dove even deeper into the whole human experience thing is because I wanted to understand what is going on in my head as I go through uh, a decision. And, and I went just simple decisions too. What's going on in my head? What are the things that I'm considering? You know, what, what are the, 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 the four dimensions of a character? And, and how does the brain um, assimilate all the context and then shuffle it all up and, and spit out a, a result? And it's, um, when, once I really went down that road, I could apply that to just about any character and in, in, in some ways, um, like other perspectives in a story. And I could start seeing where I was missing pieces that I, that I wouldn't have caught otherwise. Okay. If a character wants to become, let's just say president of the United States and that's their goal. Okay. That's just one dimension of that character. What drove that, that character to even have that desire to be president of the United States. There has to be something that drove that desire. It just doesn't come out of nowhere. Then you go, oh, it's, um, you know, his father was a patriot or something like that. And then, so now you've got a motive and you got a goal. And then right in the middle is the, the action, you know, or the methodology. What is the methodology that this character is using to actually go from a desire and translate it into a, a goal, an actually attainable goal? Oh, okay. Well, they can, you know, go to the university or maybe they become a community organizer or maybe they, uh, fundraiser, you know, or they go straight into politics. There's so many different avenues, you know? And then the last part, all this, all, a lot of this I'm crafting sort of on my own, but I derived a lot of this stuff from Dramatica. And I talked to you guys a lot about that before, but, um, the last part, which is the human element, you know, and this is where, um, movies that really point to this uh, really resonate strong. And that is, what is your measurement that you use to judge your own actions? Or you could judge your goal, or you could judge your motive. But what is the, what is the measurement that you use? Is it um, the richer I am? The faster I'll get there? Or is your measurement, if I sleep my way to the top, you know, or there's so many different ways, you know, you, we could approach that, but making sure people understand that there is a unique form of measurement that is judging because that's what separates everyone else in the audience from your character because everyone in the audience is going to have their own form of measurement in their own back of their own head, you know, and that's why when we see characters do things in movies, we're like, no, no, that's just ridiculous. Why in the world are they doing that? Well, the writer might be like, yeah, that's perfectly how things work in life. But uh, the audience is going, no, because they hadn't, they hadn't helped the audience understand how this character measures is their own actions. And once that, once that's there, you, the, the audience can sink deep into that, that, that fourth human layer and really feel 
the conflict of that choice instead of still thinking it's polarized. It's one or the other. Yeah. You're, t- you're taking us on a journey, uh, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the fellowship of, uh, of the story, I guess here. Uh, and I'm like thinking, wow. Cause we, we talk about like on the one hand, as you're sharing that, it's like, there's this convergence around how do you kind of universalize truth, right? It's like the Joseph Campbell, these archetypes, these things that people resonate with deeply on a visceral kind of primal level. And then if you toggle too, you know, the best leaders read fiction, you know, that inspires them. Right. And there's a reason. Um, and I think you're getting that too, which is you said it about that question. It was like, well, how does, what is the person feeling? Right. And then also how do you unpack the decisions that led to where they are at? And how often do we, uh, and people, you know, we, you know, part of, part of this discussion is, you know, folks in, in any work setting, right. Any domain. And, you know, they're in, in a work environment where maybe it's been disrupted. There's been a lot of change in their lives. And then maybe there's leaders too, are trying to inspire people and, you know, maybe, missing that question, right? So it's just like they're producing content, like to Ian's point, and there's not context. And then there's not necessarily context that has the human element that ties to what is this character feeling, right? This person who is in my team, and what do they need to feel? And back to, I mean, I guess it's full circle back to your experience with some of those great directors, which was, wow, you were feeling inspired. You were feeling like, wow, I want to do my best work. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like some of these story elements, as you think about it too, like, you know, how, how could, you know, how can leaders, um, you know, or people in, in any context to apply some of these principles of you know, story and in their experience and whatever it may be. Yeah. It's, it's such a great question because, um, I have learned so much through the pursuit of story. Um, that directly relates to these kinds of things, especially leadership, you know. Um, and one of the things that um, that I would used to say to students, another thing I used to say to them is that um, it's more important um, the viewer's experience than the main character's experience. Way more important. And that's, we forget a lot in storytelling, they they forget that because they're just trying to write all these things that are happening to the main character and the main character's crying. Oh, how do we show they're going through this? But a better question is, what's the, what is the viewer feeling? What is the viewer going through? And, And from a leadership perspective, that's like instantly like recognizing the, the, the human nature of other people on their team. And wanting to understand what they're going through, you know, not the, not the product, you know, or not whatever you're working on, but what the, the people that are crafting it are going through. And, um, there's, it, it's really wonderful. I'll just go back to Sam too. I remember, uh, he told me, um, at one point I was traveling and he came in my office and saw my kids on my screen. It was right when like FaceTime was the very, very earliest, earliest thing. It wasn't even called that. It was something else. And I I saw my, my kids on the screen and he just, and he, and then later that day he came to me and he goes, anytime you need a week off to go be with your kids, George. And I knew like, Oh my gosh, like, he's recognizing something that's really critically important 
and he knows that if if uh if that stuff is is uh is is solid uh i'll be better at my job i'll be better at creating i'll be better at at uh at, at helping him out in whatever way he knew that he's a big family guy too yeah i mean is do, do you feel like it's it's generally a little bit more at arm's length as, as it relates to the personal stuff with production companies. Oh, big time. Hmm. Yeah. Big time. It's hard to balance. Uh, um, yeah. It's hard to balance those expectations. It really is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy, that's a question that gets caught, brought up all the time. You know, how do you balance work life and family life? And I say, you don't, <laughs> you're always off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I used to tell them that it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a pendulum, you know, I'll, I'd go like this. I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm way too work oriented. Oh, okay. I got to bring it back, bring it back. I'm, then I'm like way too oh, family side and work is suffering. I'm bypassing the middle constantly. I'm never, I'm never holding it, <laughs> but that's, that's, I've come to accept that's exactly how, uh, uh, at least for me, that's I'm, I'm comfortable in that space knowing that as long as I'm making an effort, to correct. Um, even if I just bypass the, the medium where it's, uh, aligned, um, as long as I'm trying to correct, that's, uh, that's, that brings me yeah. peace. I love that yeah. example too, that you shared because that, uh, that Sam did, right? Like, cause it, it's not just about that moment, right? Like it's, just, it's an anchoring, uh, mo- it's, it's an anchoring kind of principle to say like, gosh, like you have, that autonomy. Right. And then you probably felt like even more motivated, right. There's more trust and it just infused yeah. all of that into that relationship probably. Right. Yeah. He, he invested in his team a lot. Um, even, oh boy, I could name a number of them. Like Dean Dubois, he was another one. He invested big time into, uh, into his team. Um, he did some wonderful things for me. Helped me get into the, the storyboard artist union at the time that took a lot of work, but he knew, you know, he knew that these things are important for team members. And, uh, and when you, when you show that kind of, um, that kind of interest in, in their well being, um, humans will, will go above and beyond the production demands way above. So true. Um, Ryan, when it comes to the future of storytelling, it seems like Hollywood has kind of lost their way with, you know, solid storytelling, character development. What is your hope for the future of storytelling? Like if if you were to see, you know, movies that are going to be made six years from now, what, what are your hope and dreams for those type of stories? Well, I got, I got a hope and a fear there. The fear is that the, the mediocrity will become normalized, you know, through, through, through quantity, you know, and people start going to see more and more and more movies that are very mediocre in storytelling, but they're being hailed as great movies. They're then, then that, that, the line of what really makes a good movie just gets dropped really hard on a, on a, you know, community social level. That's, and that's definitely a reality. I've seen that like crazy. I even have noticed it with myself, how I've 
I kind of got a little bit into lowering my standards, if you want to say that, when it came to storytelling, because I got I got accustomed to to some of these more formulaic, you know, sensational things. And then when I'd go back and I'd watch older films like in the nineties or eighties, I would um that I remember watching it then and being a little bit a little bit hard on it. Like, oh yeah, it was okay, but it lacked this and this and this. And I watch it again recently and I'm like, wow, that was amazing. Says my my standard had dropped, you know? So I, I think if, if if that happens to me, I'm sure it happens to, you know, everyone to a degree. That's that's kind of scary. But my hope is that um it's that subconscious thing. When when people don't 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 feel the meaning of a of a film or a story, and it happens um and it happens a lot and they get numb to it, then when that one thing does come along that's just magnificent that the contrast is so much greater of, of me- mediocre to good. The contrast is so much greater that it becomes that much more of a, of a powerful, powerful film that people like, and then it sets a whole new standard and then all of Hollywood becomes copycat machines. We got to do it like that film. Right? So out of the, out of the mediocrity will shine like a greater great. Well, I've just been so interested in in delving more into the movie and the gaming industry, especially from someone who has, you know, lived through these projects from start to finish. And obviously in those industries, story is kind of the coin of the realm. And people are talking about that a lot. Um, you know, whether standards have have you know, maintained or gone down is definitely another, another topic from what you've described. Um, do you think that it's possible for organizations that are in completely unrelated industries from the film and gaming industry, do you think that there's an opportunity for them to more effectively use storytelling in their own organizations? And if so, what are some ideas that you might be able to, to suggest for those leaders? Uh, that that level of storytelling applies to everything. It applies to your, your your own life. It applies to how you run a company. You know, I absolutely. I, I found for me, it, there's not one instance where I could actually say, "Oh, that doesn't really apply." You know, this is a different thing. But no, everything is a story, and, and even someone running their company, just the basics of what's your goal, why are you doing it. How are you going to do it? And, and how, are you, how are you judging that how you're doing it is the right way of doing it, right? Just in, in a company that's producing a product or just asking that basic question just um, um, can really help you or help a company point to where hiccups might be. They can go, you know what, looking at this sort of like structure here, if this was a story, if we're in the middle of a story, and the founders, you know, they created the company because they had a dream and they're doing it this way. And they have this goal. Like, okay, how's it, how's it going to, how's it going to wrap up here? You know, how's it, how's it going to end? Where's the conflict and right. how are we going to get over the conflict? And, and how are we going to, how are we going to get to this goal in just a celebratory way, not a fairy tale way where everything just goes, you know, the chart goes like this. Right. It's, it's, 
if you really want a good story, the chart has to go like that and then go back up and recognizing that. And, and, and th then it's almost like a, you look for the conflict because you know, um, then you get excited. You're like, Oh my gosh, there's the conflict. Look, and now I can see how much better we're going to be because if we, if we tackle that instead of just trying to hide it and you can actually point and get excited to like conflicts. No, I think that's what a lot of organizations are missing is that heart and soul of their own story. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so imagine the, if that's the backdrop, if the organization is the frame and these leaders and people are just going to work in these dismal situations where, you know, they, they don't have a sense of purpose. It's just boring work, you know? And there's something to be said, you know, perhaps this, this is something we could have a separate conversation with you about is, you know, character development and leadership development, right? Yeah. From a storytelling standpoint, like getting, uh, you know, earthy as Chris said, right. And getting granular with, you know, how do, you know, like, let's dissect this. Let's, uh, how do we make decisions? Why do we do the things that we do? The answer that some leaders spit out, oh, we've always done it this way. Yeah. It doesn't hold up. Like no. nobody buys it, you know? No. And the, uh, when you really have that mindset of, of, of looking for growth, despite the conflict, then that's when you have a, a, a tragedy that can be a great film. If your company fails, it's not, it's, it's not an overarching failure. If it fails objectively, it's not an overarching failure because you could actually look at it and go, it failed, but what was the, what, what was the growth that happened because of that failure? What the growth in, 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 in all the employees, the growth in the, uh, you know, the leadership, you know, what was the growth? And then you just like a, a movie, that's a really a, a tragedy or her, Romeo and Juliet. Everyone loves Romeo and Juliet. It's the most horrific tragedy ever. Right. But because it's, it's about the growth. You know, there's, you, you learn love, you know, Titanic, horrible tragedy on all levels, but it's not about, it's not about the failure. It's about how people responded and learned and, and loved to feel those feelings, you know? And I think when that becomes the focus and it's, it's focused on growth despite failure, then you're a magnet to not have failure. It's kind of funny, you know, then you're manifesting more success because you're so unafraid of failure. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. And thanks to our guest, Ryan Woodward, for pulling back the curtain on the work that goes into the storytelling process in films. We'll look forward to seeing what Ryan does next. If you've enjoyed listening to Lead with a Question, please comment, write a review, rate the show, or subscribe. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us.